Well, good morning again. Uh, it is good to be with y'all. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Matthew 19, the passage is also printed there in your order of service. Um, this, again, is another event in the life of Peter. If you've been with us for the last number of weeks, that's what we have been considering this winter and, and now spring, uh, different episodes from the life of Peter. And, and you remember that, that really it's not as much about Peter as, is a much, as much as it is about Jesus. Peter is our entry. He's our gateway into understanding what it looks like to, to follow and to walk with Christ. And that is really kind of the, the underlying question that has supported this whole series is, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What was Christian formation? What, what does it look like for us to be made more and more into his image? How are we to follow him? That's the question that we've ulti- ultimately been asking as we've been going through this series. And, and really, that's the question that's before us again today. It's not necessarily in those words, but, but it comes in the form of two questions, actually. So in our passage, there's, there's really actually three, if you want to get very uh, technical with me. So after the service, you, you know, you don't have to pull me aside and tell me I missed one. I, I know I did. I'm choosing to focus on two, the two important questions or the bigger questions. And what these are getting at is what it means to follow Christ. What do we gain from following him? But, but also as Jesus interacts with these question askers, what are the impediments to following Christ? And so we see this in Matthew 19. So let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, that being Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do uh, thank you for this portion of your word. And we ask that as we come to it now, 
and that you would teach us what it means to follow you, and that you would remove any impediment, that you would soften our hearts, that you would equip our hands, and that you would uh, fix our minds upon you. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to please you, because that is our ultimate desire, to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but um, as of today, we are now 26 days away from opening day. Now, uh, opening day doesn't mean the opening of the building. <laughs> uh, as much as I would love to narrow in that's, with that specificity of when we're going to be in the building, I, I, I can't do that. No, 26 days away from opening day is the opening day of the Major League Baseball season, which I'm sure many of you are well aware of, and you have the can- the the the, um, where the calendars, you know, where you're pulling off day by day every day when you, no, no one else is doing that. So, um, so 26 days. And, and uh, this time of year, uh, kind of end of winter, early spring, when spring training has begun and the players are down in Florida or, or Arizona and they're warming up, they're getting ready for the season. Uh, as, as opening day approaches, I start to get a little nostalgic. I really do. I, I start to get nostalgic, not just for the days when I played, but, but actually nostalgic for uh, all those movies that I love, those baseball movies. You know, those classic baseball movies like For Love of the Game or, or Pride of the Yankees or The Sandlot. Like, these are the movies that I want to go back and watch again and again and again. Now, I recognize that as I'm talking to you all, um, there may be very few of us who actually share my nostalgia and deep love for baseball, but, but even if you, you don't love the game and you're not longing to go back and watch these classic movies, I'm sure there is one baseball movie that almost all of us, if not all of us, have seen and we all love, right? That movie's Field of Dreams, right? Right, Field of Dreams, it's a classic. We we have to watch it every single season, or at least you should, right? (laughs) It's that story of Ray... Uh, Ray, who's this Iowa farmer, right? He's, he's this uh, son of a former Major League Baseball player, and, and there's been this rift between his father, and his father has passed away. But now he's an Iowa farmer, and out in the fields, what does he start to hear? He hears voices. But he's not just hearing voices. He actually acts upon these voices, right? So when he hears, if you build it, they will come, what does he do? He plows his Iowa cornfield, he builds a baseball field in the hopes that Shoeless Joe and other dead ball players will return and play baseball. And after he builds his field, right, he's out there, and what does he hear now? He hears ease his pain. And so he he goes across country to Boston to find this this, uh, obscure retired writer, Terrence Mann, to take him to a Red Sox game and ease his pain. And then at the game, he hears, go the distance. And so now he and man, they travel to some small little town to find this forgotten baseball player who never got his one major league at bat. They go the distance. Through it all, right, every, every voice that he hears, it leads him to a new adventure, a new thing, and another instance of him going and doing something that he would have never thought to have done before. And you remember at the very end of the movie, he's standing there with Shoeless Joe and Terrence Mann, 
right? The, the movie's coming to a close, and Shoeless looks at the two men and says, do you want to come with me, right? There's one more time for him to be able to go somewhere, to hear that voice, and to maybe take another step into the unknown. He says, do you want to go with me into the cornfield? Remember the cornfield? It's like they walk in, and they kind of evaporate. Like, where do these dead ghosts go? Like, where, where do these dead ballplayers go off to? And so, so he thinks he's talking to him, but but it's Terrence Mann he's talking to. And so now, Ray, in his frustration, he says to Shoeless Joe, he says, I've done everything. I've, I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done everything. I've done it. And I haven't once asked, what's in it for me? And he was right. He had done everything, right? If you've seen the movie, you know that his, his exploits took his farm to the brink of bankruptcy, that he drove across country on a wild goose chase, that he felt the scorn of a town who thought he was crazy and the mocking of his brother-in-law who thought he was living out a childish fantasy. He had risked everything. And now he was asking, what's in it for me? You know that question. You've asked it before. Maybe you haven't asked it with those exact words, what's in it for me, but every time we've weighed cost versus benefit, every time we've considered a perceived outcome of something, every time we've wondered if, if we should do this or that, whatever it might be, is it worth it? We're asking that question. What gain will come? What's in it for me? We don't just ask that question. That's actually that question Peter's asking, isn't it? In verse 27, he looks to Jesus and he says, We left everything and followed you. What then will we have? See, Peter really has left everything, hasn't he? I mean, he left career. He left the little bit of wealth he had from being a fisherman. He had left home and reputation. He had left everything along with the other disciples and followed Jesus. And now he's asking, what about us? What will we have? What do we gain? What's in this for me? That's not the only question that's asked, is it? About the gain of following Jesus? That's not the only question. You see, before Peter even gets an opportunity to ask this question, we see another question being asked. Not about the gain from following Christ, but a question that is asked that, that when Jesus answers, gives us insight into what impedes us from following Jesus in the first place. You see, this man, the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus. We, we call him the rich young ruler. He's not actually called that in the passage, but we piece it together. He's wealthy, he's got great possessions, he's young, right? Other passages tell us he was a king or some sort of ruler, he had authority. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's not asking him about the cost of following Jesus, what he would gain from it, but he's asking him instead what he must do to follow Jesus. And as Jesus answers him, he shows the impediments to following and so that's where I want us to begin. I want us to begin with the impediments to following Christ, and then we're going to return to Peter's question about what we gain from following Christ. So what is, how does this begin? Well, the rich young ruler comes in verse 16, and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now listen, this is a wonderful question. 
right? I mean, this is a very important question that the rich young ruler asks of Jesus. In fact, it is the question because the truth is, is that not only the rich young ruler, but every one of us desires eternal life. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has set eternity in the hearts of men so that we cannot perceive it. So we can't fully comprehend it. We can't really get our minds around it. And yet our desire for it is there. It has been implanted in us by, by God. And so this is an important question that he asks. And so what would we expect Jesus to say? Well, what would you say? If your friend comes to you and says, I know you go to church. You're spiritual, right? You're, you're a Christian, you talk about eternal life, you talk about born again, whatever that means. I'm not sure what that means, but, but how can I live forever? If, if someone asks, I mean, like, talk about putting it up on a tee, right? That's another baseball analogy. Like, you don't have, it's really easy to hit. Okay, that's what that, all right. Anyway, so um, if your friend came and asked you that, how would you respond? Well, you'd probably say th things like, well, well, it's God's grace. It's his mercy. It's his kindness. God's the one who does it. There's nothing that you can do, right? Those, and those would be good answers, right? Please say those things. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? Jesus is actually going to press and he's going to push into what is driving this man's desires. In verse 17, he responds, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And so the rich young ruler responds, well, which ones? And Jesus lives, lists off five of the Ten Commandments and then tops it off with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, at this point, the rich young ruler should be thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> right? Because even if he's never murdered someone, he's hated someone in his heart. And even if he's never committed adultery, he's lusted after a woman. And I bet if we could find his mom or dad and pull them aside, they could tell us at least one or two stories of how he dishonored them, right? I mean, he should be thinking, sitting there thinking, uh, I haven't measured up. I've broken these commandments, right? And even the fact that Jesus says there is only one who is good should have given him a clue that the rich young ruler ain't him, right? When Jesus says there's only one who is good, is the rich young ruler going, ha <laughs> ha? Yes, there is. Because he shouldn't be. And yet, what does he say? He says, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? So Jesus presses even deeper. Jesus presses even deeper because Jesus knows there is something that he still lacks. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, Go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Okay, now here's a question. Why didn't he do it? He asked Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus just gave him one thing, sell everything. Why didn't he do it? Well, he didn't do it because really he didn't want eternal life in the way in which Jesus was offering him. Right? He, he really wasn't interested in the life that Jesus could give. He was interested in life on his own terms. 
You see, the rich young ruler could conceive of his life as a life that didn't include adultery and didn't include murder and didn't include stealing, but he could not imagine eternal life without his wealth. And so Jesus is pressing. He is pushing. He is not letting him off the hook. You see, the rich young ruler cannot have life and himself. He cannot just have Jesus as as another component of his life. Jesus needs to be his whole life. You see, what the rich young ruler was saying was he was willing to obey the external laws, but he was unwilling to give up his internal love. See, what he really loved was his wealth. What he really loved was his possessions. What he was doing was exactly what Augustine said he was doing. When Augustine prayed to God about his life before he became a Christian, Augustine said, I abandoned you to pursue the lowest things in your creation. And that's exactly what the rich young ruler is doing. You see, he wants Jesus and wealth. He had a great many possessions, and so eternal life was just another thing for him to have. Lined up neatly on the mantelpiece, lined up in the trophy case, right? Youth, wealth, power. I bet he was good looking too, right? Because he had to be, because everything, right? Good looking, and now life is just lined up neatly. But Jesus says you can't have that. Jesus said that if, if he's saying to him, if, if really what is your heart's desire is your wealth, if that is what your heart is clinging to, then you really aren't interested in eternal life. You see, Jesus is, isn't going to allow him to think that he can only be a component of his life. Jesus is life itself. He is not just the first among many. He's not just our best option. He is our only option. Jesus said in Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. There is no life apart from him. And for this man, what was impeding this life was his wealth. He was wanting eternal life, but he was also wanting his wealth. And this, this is the very thing that can so easily our hearts cling to, right? I mean, let, let's just be honest. In, in the history of the world, I'm not talking about the uber-wealthy, right? But, but in the history of the world, and even in, in our day and age, we are wealthy. We are wealthy, right? Very few of us have wondered where our next meal will come from, right? We probably throw away more food than, than, uh, than, than some people even devour, right? Most of us aren't worried about where, where uh, our next set of clothes will come from or if we'll have a roof over our head. And, and there's nothing to repent about, about that. We should not feel guilty for that. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the history of the world, we are wealthy. And so just even for us, even if you're not in the top 1%, wealth can be something that our hearts cling to. And we need to be aware of. And so what does Jesus say? Knowing that wealth is something that our hearts can hold to, that we could grip tightly to, he says, I say to you only with difficulty. 
Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now there have been many people who have tried to, you know, talk about the, the eye of the needle, you know, and many pastors have talked about there was this little gate called the eye of the needle, and it was hard for camel. Like, the, we've never found that gate, okay? What Jesus is saying is, look, Look, do you see how impossible it is, right? Like, like it's, it's with great difficulty a camel could go through the eye of a needle. So we should go, oh, huh. If it's that hard, then maybe it's that hard for us for the things that we cling, when we are clinging to something other than him, right? That is the point of Jesus using this illustration. That there are things that we will cling to that will inhibit our ability to enter into life that will inhibit our ability to cling to Christ. Now, it may not be wealth. It may not be wealth for you. But it might be something else. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your physique. Maybe, maybe it's your children or your career or your spouse. Maybe it's your reputation you see, anything, anything can impede our ability to follow Christ. It was the great reformer Martin Luther who once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And he was basically just paraphrasing Jesus when Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your heart? Where is your heart? Is Jesus enough? What if tomorrow you lost all your wealth? What if tomorrow something horrible happened to your spouse? What if you never have a spouse? Will Jesus still be enough? You see, to follow Christ means that we love him more than anything else. It means that our hearts are so enamored with him that, that they are no longer enamored with the things of the world. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus said and didn't say. He said it's difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven, but not impossible, right? He didn't say it was impossible. He said it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but not impossible. And when his disciples heard this, it made them wonder, right? Because in their ideas, in their way of thinking, uh, wealth was associated with God's blessing. And so surely God was showing favor upon these people. And there are instances in the Old Testament, so it made no sense to them. But what Jesus is telling them is that it is not impossible, it's difficult. Because what? With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so what Jesus is telling us is that regardless of what the impediment might be, whether it is wealth or whether it is career or whether it is family, whatever the impediment might be, God has the ability to remove it. That God is the one who changes our hearts so that even the wealthy can enter the kingdom of God. Even former idolaters are moved from idolaters into worshipers of God. That rebels of God are moved into 
children of God, into the family of God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Man can't do it, but God can. He is the one who can change our heart. And so we need to pray, Lord, make me open-handed with all that I have. Make me open-handed with all that I have. Lord, help us to be enamored with your unfading beauty more than the momentary twinkles of this world. Lord, fill our hearts with a love for you over love for anyone or anything else. And when we pray these things, what we're asking is for God to do the impossible. We are asking him to do something that we could never do, but he can. Okay, so if he does this, he removes these impediments. Well, what do we gain? What do we gain? We still have Peter's question looming out there, right? What's in it for us? I mean, why would we give up wealth and fame? Why would we give up influence? Why would we walk away from career? Why would we be willing to give up anything to follow him? What do we gain? Well, now when Peter asked that question, When he says, we have left everything and followed you, what then will we have? It's kind of easy to think think poorly of Peter, isn't it? Like, I can't believe you would ask such a question, Peter. Because it makes it sound like he's saying himself in contrast in comparison to the rich young ruler. Like, he wasn't willing to go and leave everything, but but don't worry, Jesus, we are. (laughs) Feel pretty good about ourselves. Right? It kind of can feel that way. But, but I actually think we're supposed to give Peter the benefit of the doubt here. I don't think he's coming off as, as smug or conceited. I think that he's really simply trying to understand what, what's in store for those who follow Christ, who willingly leave everything to follow after him. What's in store? And the reason I think we're to give him the benefit of the doubt is Jesus' response. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't chastise him. He didn't scold him. What does he do? He assures Peter. He assures him with a promise. Look at verse 28. Jesus says to Peter and to the disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus is speaking specifically to the original twelve here that there is something unique about their position when they enter into the new heavens and the new earth. They'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, now I do want to say, like, nobody knows exactly what that means. Uh, I, I looked at many, many commentaries, and pretty much all of them said, we're not sure. Uh, that's like the theological, technical way of saying it. <laughs> but, but basically, they're not sure what this ultimately means because what does it mean to judge? Well, it can't mean in a moral sense because that judging is over. We're in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus is the ultimate judge. So, so it, it may actually be uh, having more to do with the word meaning to rule as opposed to judge. That, that's how that word could be translated, that, that regardless of what it is that the 12 disciples are going to be doing, they're giving some sort of place of honor in the new heavens and the new earth, and they're going to participate in some activity that is unique to them. So they're gaining this, this place of honor. But, but that still begs the question for us, well, what about us? Because we're not the 12. 
And we're not given thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel, whatever that might be. So what about us? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 29, he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Do you see what we gain? We gain life. Those things that promise life in this world, that, that when we release them, that when we let go of them, that when we follow after Jesus, we are given life eternal. And I want you to notice a couple things about this life, about this following. The first is, is that in leaving everything to follow Jesus, we're not just doing this because we have this preference for solitary life. It's not like um, an introvert's dream of uh, like this modern monastic community or something like that. That's not why we do it. We leave everything to follow him for his namesake. That's what he said. Did you see that? It's not just so that we would, we would lead a, a poor or impoverished life. It's we would do this for him. That we would leave everything for his namesake. And in this day to leave family, to leave father or mother or children or lands, this would have been radical. Because in this day, so much of a person's identity was tied up in whose family they were from or what land they came from or what place they lived in. And what Jesus is saying is that, that you replace that old identity with a new identity. You are a follower of Christ. You leave land, you leave place, you leave family for my sake. See, what Jesus is telling us is that to follow him is deeper than our heritage. It's more important than our lineage. It is more significant than our location. He is our identity, and he supersedes everything. And so we let go of anything that hinders our following so that we would take hold of him. We do it for his namesake, and we do this because he has given it to us. You see, this life that he gives us, it is a gift. Jesus says we will inherit eternal life. You don't earn an, in, an inheritance. An inheritance is given at the discretion of the giver. It is something that is given to us. And this is very different than the way in which the rich young ruler perceived of the kingdom of God, isn't it? Do you remember what he said? He said, what must I do? What must I do? You see, his perception of eternal life was this is something that I earn. This is something that, that I can achieve. That if I just do the right things, then, then I will be afforded this new life. But what Jesus is telling us is that this eternal life, it is something that is given. It is not something that we earn. It is something that is showered upon us. You see, actually, the, the rich young ruler, he should have rephrased his question. It shouldn't have been, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? He should have been asking, Jesus, what will you do so that I would have life? And by his life, Jesus is going to show us what he's going to do. Because in a little while after this, 
occasion, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. And he is going to go to the cross and he is going to do what no one else could have done. And he is going to go to the cross and bear our sins and he is going to die and rise again. So that the eternal life that every one of us is longing for is given. It's not what must we do, it's what does he do. You see, this life that we desire, it only comes through the gracious gift of God. And so is it worth it? Is it worth it? To lose that which we hold dear in this life to that which our heart clings to so that we would gain Christ, is it worth it? Do you remember uh, Ray standing on his baseball field talking to Shoeless Joe? He asked him that question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Look at all that I have done. What's in it for me? Is, has it been worth it? And Joe responded to him, is that why you did this, Ray? For you? And then a few moments later, Joe smiles and he looks at Ray and he says, if you build it, he will come. And now Ray, instead of fixing his eyes on Joe, he, he turns his head down the first baseline towards home plate. And there's this old catcher wearing an old Yankees uniform, and he's taking off his catcher's gear. And he stands up, and he looks down the line, and he looks at Ray, and Ray knows who it is. It's his dad. This man, he refused to play catch with as a child, Right, This relationship that had been severed, now there is his father standing there. If you build it, he will come. Right, And so he goes to his dad and he asks him, do you want to play catch? And like every, right, every hardened man is weeping. right? And just watching the playback, I started to tear. Right? It just gets at you right? because we know in that moment just as what Ray knows in that moment. That, that all he had been through the financial difficulty, the time, the scorn, the ridicule, all that he had been through, it was worth the cost because he gained something far greater than he ever lost. And friends, that is even more true of us. That is even more true of those who follow after Christ. That to lay aside all that impedes and to take hold of Christ you see, in doing that, what we find is something far more valuable than we, what we had lost. We find Christ. We find life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that the life that you offer us is offered by Christ and Christ alone. We are thankful that, that the things that our heart clings to, that by your grace and your mercy you Open our grasp, and you lead us to the truth, to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, to you, Lord Jesus. And so I pray that today in all of our days, that we would lay aside every encumbrance, that we would lay aside everything that impedes, and that we would follow after you, our God and our King, the one who offers life. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen.